Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vinitali International Academy, announcing the 24th of our Italian Wine Ambassador courses to be held in London, Austria, and Hong Kong from the 27th to the 29th of July. Are you up for the challenge of this demanding course? Do you want to be the next Italian Wine Ambassador? Learn more and apply now at vinitaliinternational.com. Italian Wine Podcast, a Wine to Wine Business Forum 2021 media partner, is proud to present a series of sessions highlighting the key themes and ideas from the two-day event held on October the 18th and 19th. 2021. This hybrid edition of the Business Forum was jam-packed with the most informed speakers discussing some of the hottest topics in the wine industry today. For more information, please visit winetowine.net and tune in every Thursday at 2pm Central European Time for more episodes recorded during this latest edition of Wine to Wine Business Forum. going to introduce Valentina Arjolas, of course. She is not only the, the owner of Arjolas Winery of Sardinia, which we're very much looking forward to coming, by the way, with the in November, the, the with the ambassadors. Shawin, are you coming? No, you can't come. She's working for another company now. Oh, so okay. yes, I'm not, they're not letting her go. Okay. This is what happens. You see, you think things are bad working for me, but then you go to another company and you're not as free as you think you are. Anyways, the whole point is, um, Valentina Arjolas will be uh, moderating this session. Valentina Arjolas, of course, is also the president of the Grand Crew, which comprises of 80. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, 80, 80 uh, fine uh, wine wineries. So I think this fits pretty well. You're familiar with with the topic that Pauline will be speaking to. So let's get started. I don't want to waste any more time. Okay? Okay. Hello, everybody. Ciao, Pauline. Uh, let me to introduce Pauline before the presentation. Pauline was born uh, and grew up uh, in the wine-growing region in, and wine-growing family, too, in, uh, in Burgundy. But she decided to move on, to change his life, to change his path. And uh, started working in the market research department in Burgundy and then in the French embassy. And then she decided to move to London and to develop the concept of uh, fine mines for fine wines. And finally, at the end, the creation of RME Global. She's also a mother. She's very important. She has two beautiful... <laughs> Two beautiful girls, and also she's she's still studying. No, she, you don't stop studying, never. And uh, for a master of wine, but also she's playing ultimate frisbee. I don't understand what is it. <laughs> we can do that uh, after the 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 meeting. But, but it's the it's it's the work sports balance line. Ah. When you work in wine and you eat and you drink, you have to compensate. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, uh, Valentina and, and Stevie, for that for that introduction. And it's it's great to be back here. And let's dive right in into the topic of sustaining the the fine wine consumers. Before I do that, if I manage this, yeah, just just to introduce you a bit more to Arini Global and what we do. So Arini Global is a research institute dedicated to fine wine and. Why? Because uncertainty and change didn't start with COVID-19. Like for a few years now, the world's been 
complex to understand, complicated to understand. And basically, we take a funnel approach, like we try to understand the world we're living in, how the forces of change are likely to impact fine wine in the future, and what we can do about it. Um, so we have six, we study, we follow six forces of change. Um, the first one is what we call changing society, uh, or the, the, the fine wine evolving social framework. So how do people relate to fine wine? How do they relate with food? Where are they living? How are they living? How do they understand their lives and et cetera? So it's more linked to sociology and anthropology. Um, then we study the impact of the digital economy and technology on, on, the, on the future of fine wine access to markets. So that's all the research that we do with linked to geopolitics, transport, logistics, um, sustainability. So sustainability, you've heard about it today. We had a great conversation this morning on sustainability as well. Uh, but we are going to study both the environmental change and the social change around fine wine production and distribution. Um, and usually financial sustainability is the third pillar of sustainability. We took it out. We wanted to make money one of the six main forces of change because I personally believe that we don't talk enough about money in the wine world and about business model and being financially sustainable for the future. And the last forces of change that we're going to go a bit deeper in today is the, the fine wine consumer. Um, so how are they changing? Where do they live? What do they expect from uh, fine wine? What are they buying? How are they buying? Have they, you know, patterns of behavior, behavioral patterns have changed over COVID and, 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 and all of that. Um, so the way that we work, we do traditional market research study, but we also do podcast article. We've got a big publication program and we also work as a think tank. So we also chose to have a collective approach to all those changes and to all those big questions. So we, we ask questions and then we curate, we gather experts from both the wine world and outside of the wine world as well, from ambassadors to, you know, geopolitic leaders to the head of the London Stock Exchange to all of those great people to come in and also think together with us about the future of fine wine. So that's the study that I'm going to present today. It's the second edition of the study that we are doing in partnership with Mestreza, who's a negociant in the Place de Bordeaux, and whose main question was, we don't actually know who the fine wine consumers are. Uh, we need to understand who they are, where they are, how they behave. Um, and in some ways, it's user-generated because we've done the first study in 2019. We presented it in a couple of places and then people came back with feedback about what they would like to know, the type of information that was missing in the study. And so we've done the second edition like this with that focus as well, trying to include a lot, a lot of extra questions. So if it's 84 pages long, what I'm going to present today, it's really a snapshot. Um, and if you ever wanted to access the full study, Arini is a member organizations. You can become a member, get access to all the publication that we do. There's loads of free stuff on the website already. And you can also access some of the mini think tank session that we do. So first, when we talk about fine wine and the fine wine consumer, the first thing that we had to do is actually to define fine wine. And that was the starting point of Rurini four years ago, because why, what on earth are we talking about when we're talking about fine wine and how can we study the consumer if we don't know what fine wine is? So we first asked the trade, and it's been an ongoing project, which is called the Define Fine Wine Project. You can find the white paper online for free. It's the third edition. I'm working on the fourth. And we asked 200 members of the trade around the world what they thought were on fine wine, what it was. And we came up with 
a collective definition that I'm sure is going to change through time. But at that moment in time, that's the definition that we came up with. Fine wine needing those four dimensions to be considered fine. Um, and if you look at it, so a fine wine is complex, balanced with the potential to age. That's the first pillar. That's the first dimension. For those of you that are familiar with the Blick system of the WSCT, so it's balance, length, intensity, complexity, ageability. So it's the more objective dimension of fine wine, as much as we can be objective in wine. Um, then the second one, it's a wine that provokes emotion and wonders in the one drinking it. So often people differentiate a good wine with a great wine in the capacity of the great wine to provoke emotion and to stop time. So it was 1978 and my granddad opened that bottle of port and the fire was cracking and we, you know, we were having that kind of food at that. So people remember exactly the taste of the wine, even 20 years later. Um, and while reflecting the expression of truth intended by its maker, I like that part because fine wine doesn't happen by mistake. There's an intent there's um, the intention of a winemaker to actually do the best that he or she can do in a given environment. And what he or she thinks or interpret as the best that they can do as the truth about what being fine means. So there's really a relationship between the maker and the wine. Um, and the last part, um, so the fourth pillar, it is environmentally, socially and financially sustainable. That's the part that we've um, just added in the third edition. We didn't have that two years ago in the first definition of fine wine. And then when we did the second round of interviews, that was really a dimension through the trade. Maybe I won't have the time to talk about that dimension with the consumer, but at least with the trade, sustainability is really important um, and, and defining how the traditional gatekeepers in the wine world are seeing also fine wine in the future. Just to give you a bit of a topic of conversation and we can discuss that later with the glass of wine but just to give you a bit of perspective so this gentleman is Peter Giuliano he's the head of the specialty coffee association and we had that conversation about what the hell is specialty coffee um, and five years ago they had a definition about specialty coffee like the premium coffee that was very close to ours that was about the quality of the green beans the quality of the roasting process the quality of all that they had a, a, a an aura aroma wills that they get inspiration from the wine world as well and 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 the green coffee had to taste this and this and that and then five years ago they say no we're going to change that we're going to do and you know a totally different approach to that and specialty coffee is whatever the consumer think is special so the first thing that i like to notice is that so we go to uh, the coffee specialty association that has a hundred percent consumer centric kind of definition and our definition even if you know uh, the the consumer is only here because we need someone to drink the wine. So it's like kind of two opposite pull in how we interact with the consumer, one which is just needed to put the product in light and the one, so we can discuss that later with a glass of wine. It's a, it's a full conversation about if it's good, if it's better, if it's less good. Anyway, um, so when we decided to approach um, that, uh, that year study with a bit more quantitative data and we wanted to understand if we could segment the fine wine market and the fine wine consumer, uh, when we went into, um, again, quantitative data, we had to put a price on fine wine. So as you've seen in our collective definition, there's no notion of price. It's not a fine wine is expensive and expensive is 150 euro a bottle. But when we had to measure things, we couldn't compare pear and oranges. So we took that three tier of price, which is based on Laplace de Bordeaux price. So it's a very Bordeaux biased 
definition price of fine wine, but we had it to start it somewhere to measure the market. Um, and when you look at this, um, you see the first thing that you see is that the price point in fine wine, although in the most expensive bracket of wine in general, are still very, very diverse. And from someone that was going to buy a bottle at 40 pounds or 40 euro, 40 euro a bottle and someone that's going to buy an 800 bottle of wine on a regular level, we might not talk to the same consumers. Um, or are we going to talk to the same consumers? That, that was going to be one question. So we also had two different methodology. We had a quantitative approach with wine intelligence where we studied four main markets, which is the US, the UK, China, and um, Hong Kong. And also we, we kept our qualitative approach with high net worth individuals because they're unlikely to respond to a questionnaire. So we have a program of 20 interviews a year where we meet them and we try to understand how they engage with wine. And the, the question was, do they interact the same way as normal consumer <laughs> behind bracket? So. When I'm quoting wine intelligence data that mainly refers to people that engage with the first tier of wine, I'm not saying that they're not engaging with the other tier, but people that normally answer to a questionnaire are more likely to answer to that uh, category. Um, so we wanted to know how big the market is, what's the size of the market. And so in the, in the four countries that we actually studied, um, so what wine intelligence did is that they took the percentage of wine buyers and within the percentage of wine buyers, we wanted to understand how many are actually buying fine wine. So we've determined a minimum price, which is a consumer facing price that was $75 in the US, 50 in the UK and 500 Hong Kong dollars or RMB in, in China. And if they didn't buy that price over that price point that they couldn't continue with the study. Um, and so, Within the fine wine buyers, it, within, sorry, within the wine buyers in the US, which is one out of three adults, if my memory serves me well, 7% of them buy wine that are over $75. Um, and so that's, I think again, but I'm sorry, cause I don't have my notes with me, but it's one out of 20 adults. Um, it's 2% of the global US population and it's 7% of the, of the wine buyers. Um, and that's the same process with the UK. Uh, the numbers with Hong Kong and China are really, really higher because the base for wine buyers is the sample is smaller because wine intelligence only studied um, people that live in urban center. So I think it's the first two tiers and people that buy imported wines. So it's not the whole Chinese population. It's not the whole wine buyers in China. It's already a smaller category. And within that category, how many of them are buying fine wine? And that's also why the percentage are higher. Then we wanted to know, so we have our minimum determined price. Are they buying cheaper wines? Are they buying more expensive wines? So for each country, we determined a segmentation of the price and we wanted to understand if they were going to buy higher or, 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 or cheaper. And again, in China, it's um, in Asia, it's a bit different with the numbers because, again, the sample size is a bit different. But the answer is yes. Uh, people that buy $75 in the US, people that buy £50 wine in the UK, they're all also buying, most of them are buying cheaper wines up to um, the, the first category, which is £10 and under. And, and they're also buying above the price. So they're not exclusively buying expensive stuff. 
then we asked them what they thought about fine wine because we had our own trade definition and we wanted to understand if the consumers were thinking the same about fine wine and how do they perceive fine wine? What are the attributes that was important to them in order to be qualified a wine as fine? And what's interesting is we've got three different sets of results. There are the ones that are true across the board, which is the, capac the capacity of the wine to age, which doesn't mean that you can't drink in Tiong. I had a question about you know, Assyrtico or Fiano di Avellino, which are like white wines that are beautiful young. It doesn't, and people usually drink young. It doesn't mean that they can age. It's not because people choose to drink them young that they can't age. It's a different thing. Uh, but that's across the board. Fine wine has to go through time. Um, and, and the role of critics is also important across the board. The score from critics and the notes from critics are also very, very important. So that's, that's East and West the same. Then we've got a difference between West and East where in the, in the West, in the UK and the US, the notion of typicity and authenticity is more important and, and the complexity of taste is also very important. So it's more related to how the wine tastes. And then in Asia, we see that the notion of scarcity and rarity is a bit more important. And then finally, where all, everyone also agrees is on the attributes that are not important and not considered important for a consumer in order to determine if the wine is fine or not, which is um, uh, the price. So we try to measure if the wine needed to be expensive for consumer to actually consider it fine. And that's always, we, we measure 60, uh, 17 attributes and it's always within the bottom three. Consumers don't really think of wine as, you know, uh, expensive being part of the definition. And also the capacity to, for the wine to tell a story, we were trying to measure, I don't know if you know Hugh Johnson quote about a fine wine is a wine worth talking about. So we wanted to measure the resonance of storytelling and it's also something, so uh, maybe we didn't ask the question, question correctly, or, but people didn't really resonate with that story. You, a wine doesn't need to have a story to be considered fine. Sorry, that was the conclusion. And then the last one is sustainability. And um, at the moment, fine wine consumers do not think that a wine needs to be sustainable to be fine, or that a wine can be, cannot be fine if it's not sustainable, if it's, not, if it's more on that way around. <laughs> Are you enjoying this podcast? There's so much more high-quality wine content available from Mama Jumbo Shrimp. Check out our new wine study maps, our books on Italian wine, including Italian Wine Unplugged, The Jumbo Shrimp Guide to Italian Wine, Sangiovese Lambrusco and other stories, and much, much more on our website, mamajumboshrimp.com. Now back to the show. Then we ask them about semantic association and what the type of wording that they associate. I'm going to go a bit quicker with those numbers because you will have access to the presentation if we want, if you want to go back to. Um, and I wanted to talk to you a bit more about Italian wines as, as well and how how they fit in the picture. But but long story short, the attributes and the words that they choose to describe fine wine are very positive and engaging you know no one is saying it's elitist something that it's not for me or stuff like that so they they, they all associate words that are quite positive um so that's one of the slides that i wanted to ask to present to you because we wanted also to understand what they buy so what in terms of origin what where the fine wine came from and i think that's something that's not going to be a surprise for all of you is the big trends that we see and that we've seen accelerated during COVID is the diversity of origin. 
Um, I think Bordeaux was 90% of the secondary market 15 years ago. It's 42%. It was 42% in 2020. So people are still buying Bordeaux. People are still, you know, buying Bordeaux to put in the cellar and it's still considered a, a main fine wine in across the board. But we see more and more other origins coming up. And Italy has been one of those origins that's really rise during COVID and has been bought in a in a bigger proportion during COVID than than the rest of the world. And when you speak to collectors or high net worth individuals, they're super excited about that diversification. They're super excited about having some other stuff to try. Um, maybe not to invest in yet, but at least to buy, to drink, sometimes even to collect, because there's a different be- difference between collectability and investability, that's a word. Um, but yeah, they're very, they're very excited about having more origin to pick from and to choose from. Um, so I'm usually asked, what's, where's the next origin of, of fine wine? So, you know, can Sardinia be the next fine wine destination, destination and origin? And when you talk to um, James Mice and LiveX, he explains quite clearly that to be at least collectible uh, and appear in, in the secondary market, um, a wine region needs three things. You need an exports market because fine wine, the status of fine wine of scarcity or rarity is not going to be given to you by your local market. You're not scarce. You're not rare. You, you know, you're just next door. You're not a luxury kind of association for your local market. So, you know, Bordeaux wouldn't be Bordeaux with the British. Burgundy wouldn't be Burgundy without, you know, China. We all, we all need an export market to give us the fine wine status. Then the second thing is a very clear hierarchy of quality. So people need to understand very quickly why they pay 100% more, you know, for why they pay five euro for a wine from that region, but why they pay also 200 euros from a wine from the same region. Um, and the last thing is they need um, a very long history of quality and it's consistency through time. Um, so, you know, you can't be a fine wine overnight. It goes, or a fine wine region overnight. It goes, it goes with time and consistency. You'll, you can dig in a bit more about the occasion of fine wine consumption. Why are people buying fine wine for? Well, for special events and celebration, but also as a treat to themselves. So they use it as a social um, medium, but they also use it in the in the privacy of their home. And of course, they've been doing this a lot over the last two years. And that's also why sometimes they even change. So we had those very it's it's anecdotal, but we had so many people in Asia telling us that, like, in the freedom of their home, without the the peer pressure of bringing this or that bottle of wine, they could actually explore. For example, with Italian wines, because you know they're considered cheaper than Bordeaux usually. So in in my house, I can actually drink that um, because it's very good quality, and I don't risk not not being not having those social status that I need to have when I go out. Um, then we asked them about the selection criteria. So how do they select wine? What's the decision tree to buy wine? Um, and it's interesting. I'm just going to talk about the vintage because, again, the notion of time is really important for fine wine. And it's also really important for fine wine drinkers and buyers. So they have a very, uh, most of them are so knowledgeable. They know vintage by heart. They know the quality of a vintage and they understand price variation according to vintage most of the time. Um, and, and so they will, like vintage is key. Um, and 
for regions that have a shorter history with fine wine or have maybe less vintage variation, that's something they will have to work up with as well, the relationship with vintage and, and the fine wine consumer. And then very quickly, I just wanted to focus really quickly on the high net worth individuals. So those people that we don't interview through questionnaires, but we do face-to-face -face interview with, really trying to understand. So they're around the world. They're, they're all age, all gender. Because um, also that's something that I didn't mention about the, the consumer before is the gender where it's male dominated in the US and the UK. So 70% of those drinkers are male, 30% are female. In Asia, it's 50-50. So when we were trying to segment, there's really a difference between West and East about who's buying fine wine. Um, so our high net worth individuals, what we actually see is that Of course, they demand to be seen as individuals, but they have the means to actually be treated as individual and, and a very tailored experience and approach. But what's interesting is a move from demographics uh, to intent. So I see more common point about the motivation in buying fine wine than common point in how they behave depending on their age, depending on their gender, or depending on where they are based internationally. It's really depending on the type of relationship they've got with wine that's going to influence their, their fine wine buying pattern and behavior. And they've got, they all share similar characteristic across the board. Um, so usually so far, they, they, they are people that are highly, highly curious. Uh, they keep on learning all the time. They are super price aware. They are international. They've got four house with adapted buying patterns in all those house and still men dominated apart from some parts of Asia where it's kind of 50-50 with women. And those are the four segmentation of collectors that we see. What we call status seeker is that people that are interested in, you know, showing themselves with a bottle of fine wine to demonstrate status. Um, they some of them are passionate, the deep diver. They know so much, they actually know more than the trade now. And they've got quite an impact on some collector's market. So those are another category of consumer. Then we have the affluent, which are also called the just rich, people buying expensive wine just because they have more money, but they're not particularly more engaged with the product. They're buying the same way that I would buy a 20 euro bottle of wine or that my mom would buy a five euro bottle of wine. It's just we don't have the same financial capacity. And then the last one is the collector drinker. So people that collect, people that buy to collect drink and sometimes invest a bit on the side as well. Um, and, and to me, it's more interesting to look at the fine wine consumer through those profiles than through any kind of demographics. So that's, that's a podcast that we've done on Inside the Mind of, of the Collector. If you want to hear a bit more how, how collectors work and how they think in their head, you can access that on, on the website. And I just wanted to finish on that. So basically to conclude that very brief presentation of two years of work. <laughs> But... Um, Uh, the fine wine consumers have a variety of consumer profile um, and there's a diversity of audience. Like there's no one fine wine consumer, as I'm sure you could have guessed. Um, they all are, are highly engaged with the product and they associate fine wine with positive attributes and desirable traits. So it's kind of positive for the fine wine world at the moment. Um, it's highly regarded as a category and the diversification of style and origin that we are seeing is positively seen by consumers in trade. So it's again, quite positive. Um, and high net worth individuals have more money and they've used fine wine to invest and to drink more. So yeah, um, 
So this this is the good side of the thing. This is actually fine wine is in a good place at the moment. If you want to re read that latest publication, which is called The Year in Conversation, there are some sources of worry. Like not everything is pink, but I don't have the time to present what's not pink in the fine wine world. But you can also read that. It's it's accessible for free um, on, on our website if you want to understand the forces of change that might change that very bright picture that I've painted today. Thank you. Gracias, Pauline. <laughs> I spend all my day listening with you with you about this uh, very important topic. However, the first question, how the pandemic influenced the perception of uh, fine wine in the market and the per perception of consumer of fine wines? Well, again, you will have to define a bit more the market and then the, the segment of, of fine wine consumer. But basically, generally speaking, The, the pandemic has been good for wine drinking, at least. People have been buying quite a lot, at least in the UK and the US, which are the two markets which I'm the most familiar with in terms of hard data. People have seen an increase in either the, the cheaper uh, parts of the portfolio or the most expensive ones. So people have started not only drinking what they had in their cellar, but also buying differently because they were drinking differently. Uh, we had consumers that tell us we've bought more champagne because now I'm not work I'm not drinking with my work colleague. I'm drinking with my wife and my wife like sparkling. Or we had collectors that also say, well, we didn't really touch the Bordeaux this year, but we, we bought more Italian wines because we think they're more ready to drink quicker. So instead of, you know, drinking Lafitte and the tour, they drunk Sassicaia and Ornelaia and all those great Italian wines. They also sometimes try, they were in the comfort of their place, so they could try Asiatico from Greece. Again, it really depends on what the intent was with wine and the type of relationship they had with the merchants and the supplier. But that, that's the trend that I've been seeing. Also because we have more, more time at disposal yeah. to enjoy life and then enjoy with wine. Someone have some question? Or Pauline? Felicity Counter. Um, Pauline, do you have any insights into the ways that European collectors are different from the English-speaking world in Asia? So how the European collectors based in Europe are different from the, the English-speaking based in Asia? Okay, so Sotheby's has just opened up in yeah. France. So um, do you think the Europeans are behaving like the rest of the world? Or I, I realize this isn't got nothing to do with the research you've presented. So <laughs> no, I'm, yeah, so I don't know the value of my answer. It might just be my own thoughts. Um, I think I think they are there's. And maybe you can actually link that to people in Europe not relying on European, on American and Asian tourists, for example. Um, the, the data that was just presented before on tourism, and that's also what we've been hearing, is that everyone thought the European winery tourism was going to collapse because normally European people don't spend money on tourism. They actually did this year, and loads of very premium winery have made a reasonable amount of money just with European tourists. So, so maybe that would be that. I think maybe the the wine, the world of fine wine investment has you know, overseen uh, European collectors because they were too focused on American and Asia, and now they realise that. But that's just a maybe. I don't know. That would be one of my guess. Have you um, done any study into the correlation between fine wine markets and financial markets? So that was one of the things, because uh, again, um, and I wish I had more time to explain the different, uh, to me, there's really um, a difference between collectors and investors. And that's sometimes something that we mix in the fine wine world, because they can be the same person, but the investors, they can also be not related. They cannot be collectors. I mean, investors can be people that have 
that don't really care about wine and are never going to drink the bottles. And when we look at what investors invest in, that that's that's really interesting to see um, uh, how you know after 27 that change also the, the amount of wine that was bought for investment, and actually looking at the different result of wine as an investment product has been really good this year. It's been better than gold if I if I believe some of the it's, latest. It's now the the most uh, yeah investment. Just that it's the... better than swag, which is silver, wine, um, art, and gold, and versus yeah. So have you but have you seen any direct correlation? Because like I only know this in. Uh, in layman's terms, having watched the markets, yeah. we're usually, um, the auction markets are usually three to six months ahead of financial markets in the U.S. Is that similar? Do you find so I, I haven't, I'm, I'm actually looking into it in, in there because I also want to understand the, the currency market and how the currency market affects fine wine investment. But I'm, I'm looking into this now. I don't have um exact answer. I'll, I'll touch base with you in a couple of months. That would be an interesting conversation. Pauline, Dave Parker, by the way, and I enjoyed Hi. your speech nice very much. <laughs> uh, regarding the, the three main generations as we view them in the U.S. anyway, baby boomers, Gen X, and millennials, do you see any difference in adoption speed or characteristics in terms of what they're looking for at a particular age? What's interesting is, again, that will be different from each of the market that we study. But, for example, apparently in the U.S., wine as a category is not doing so well with younger people, millennials in particular, but fine wine is. So that's really where it's interesting to study wine and fine wine differently because it doesn't have the same exact audience when it comes to this. So that's that's one of the things wine intelligence has seen is that I think, and again, top of my mind, um, 45% of the consumer that they interviewed that actually buying wines that are over 75 uh, dollars and above were between 35 and 54. So it's quite a very important category for fine wine as well. Um, is that the answer to your question? I hope that's your answer to your question. But that would be different in the UK and that would be different in Asia as well. So again, each each market will have um, sensible difference. But I am not particularly concerned. Well, I'm, not, I'm always concerned, but um, <laughs> I don't see um, consumers, young consumers deserting the fine wine space as much as they desert the wine space, if that answer your question. Yes, it does. Thank you. <laughs> Any other questions? Hi, this is Xiao. So I want to ask a question regarding to like, how do Lisbon wine consumers purchase their wine? Do you have data on the channels they're buying their wines from? Where are they buying the wine from? Yes. Um, so again, the, the the data from wine intelligence is about people that buy their wine in their own country. Is that your question? Uh, no, like where, like for example, they go to oh. a consultant or like they. Oh yeah. So it's yeah. different on any country, yeah. and that's also part of the of the study. We've studied this, and I'm sorry because I, I'm not going to quote data because I I don't. I'm too afraid of being wrong. But yeah, we've studied where they actually access fine wine from. And every market has a specificity. Every market has a form of fine wine merchants. I'm going to be very British and, and use that term. Um, and, and usually there's a lot of fine wine consumers. They are looking for a personal relationship. And the equivalent of fine wine merchant that is slightly different in Asia and slightly different in the US, they play a very important role in, de in defining the consumer's palate and defining the consumer's access. And one of the things that we've seen through the pandemic is that the relationship between fine wine merchants and the consumers has tightened up 
because they were still looking for it, it. It was kind that kind of balanced, nearly opposed relation. Like they wanted technology because they wanted to be able to buy and online very quickly, but they also wanted to have the personal touch and to have the equivalent of their fine wine merchant, somebody that they know and they trust, because it takes quite a lot of time to develop knowledge about wine or actually to know what to buy. And they actually, the role of humans in, in influencing what people buy is really important across the market. Yeah. It takes Thank different you. shape and form, but very important. Thank you. Okay, very good. Uh, a round of applause for Pauline Victor and Valentina Aljolas. Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitaly Academy, home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at vinitalyinternational.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.